Let's open our Bibles, if they're not already, to Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47. A couple more weeks here in Ezekiel. Uh, then, um, is today the 9th? Is that then the 16th? I think the 23rd is our Ignite of Worship. Sweet! Uh, and then, uh, after that, some point after that, uh, looks like we'll be starting the book of Romans. So, uh, yes, round of applause, yeah. If any book de- demands applause, it would be Romans, you know. Would you applaud for Habakkuk? Yes. How about Lamentations? Yes, all right. Right now we're in Ezekiel. A message that we are calling Waterlording. The annual Feast of Tabernacles, the most joyous on Israel's calendar. Alfred Edersheim writes this. He says, It fell on a time of year when the hearts of the people would naturally be full of thankfulness, gladness, and expectancy. All the crops had been long stored, and now all fruits were also gathered. The vintage passed, and the land only awaited the softening and refreshment of the latter rain to prepare it for a new crop. Now, one of the chief features of the feast was that the people would construct temporary shelters from branches of trees, and they would move outdoors for seven days. It caused families to look back to Israel's deliverance from Egypt and their subsequent wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years when Israel lived in tents and they worshipped at the tabernacle, which was a, essentially a portable tent. One special characteristic of the Feast of Tabernacles was the pouring of a vessel of water into a basin that was located at the base of the altar. First, the golden vessel of water was filled at the pool of Siloam and then taken to the altar. Next, another golden vessel would be filled with wine, and they both would be poured together into the basin. The mixed water and wine would flow down a conduit, which carried the water to the brook of Kidron, located across from the eastern wall. It pictured for the Jews the coming of their Messiah and his kingdom, in which the Holy Spirit would be poured out on Israel and the believers from all the nations. This ritual of water pouring was continued for six days. The last day was called the Day of the Great Hoshanan, or Hoshanan Rabbah, which means, uh, Hoshana means save now, and applied to the feast, it became the cry Hosanna. It was a look forward to the coming of the Messiah to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. So this makes the event of Jesus entering the city on what we call the triumphal entry really meaningful. John records in chapter 12 that as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the people, quote, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him, and they cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew records the chief priests and scribes became seriously upset because this greeting and prayer was reserved only for the coming of the Messiah. Mark records that the people also cried, blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, following his entry into Jerusalem, Jesus went to the temple, and we read that in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And he that believeth on me, as the Scripture saith, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Thus, Jesus was clearly representing himself as the fulfillment of all that symbolism on tabernacles, as the Messiah whose coming would result in the pouring out upon all believers of the Holy Spirit 
and the establishing of God's kingdom on the earth. So what does all that have to do with Ezekiel? Well, in his commentary on Ezekiel, scholar Charles Lee Feinberg says this. He says, water drawing at the Feast of Tabernacles owed much of his ceremonial symbolism to this passage, Ezekiel 47, that we're going to read. And so the Jews, uh, they had come to Ezekiel 47 and they understood that it was millennial or kingdom-oriented. We would say they, believed, they understood it was about the coming of their Messiah to establish the kingdom. And they established this custom of the pouring out of the water uh, largely uh, in terms of its symbolism from this passage. And so prominent in chapter 47 is a fountain of water whose source is the temple and continuously flows out through the promised land. And so let's pick it up in verse 1, of course. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. Now, we've established in our prior studies that the he who is leading Ezekiel on this tour, is Jesus. Why aren't we simply told that it's him? Why, you know, do you ever read the Bible sometimes and, and kind of in our, uh, in our ignorance as people, we think, why doesn't God just clearly tell us? You know, why doesn't he say this is Jesus? Well, for one thing, there is joy in the discovery. And we sometimes miss this. We have a tendency... You know, I don't want to get into an east-west thing and start sounding mystical, but we do have a tendency in the west to be more logical, more, you know, more matter-of-fact, uh, and, and even worse in California. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're just those kind of, you know, get to the facts and all that. And, and the Lord, you know, he, he wants us to remember that there's joy in the discovery. It's an aspect of our Lord that he is romantic, and he wants to be found out as we desire to know him. Uh, you know, he, it's not all... Uh, studying for a test as far as our relationship with the Lord. It's, it's not all knowing uh, all the different facts and figures and all that. The Lord wants us to enter into a relationship with Him. And so often, obviously, He talks about our, His relationship with us as a love relationship. He compares us to His bride and He the bridegroom. And there's a discovery aspect to it that lovers understand as you discover one another. Uh, one of my favorite stories, of course, in, in all the New Testament, the two on the road to Emmaus. Uh, what a great story. Jesus suddenly, yeah, yeah. first of all, it's freaky enough you're, you're on the road at night, you know, when you didn't travel very much and, and it's getting dark and, and then all of a sudden there's this third guy there, you know, and he's starting to ask you what you're talking about, um, you know, and, and you know, you know the story and they finally invite him in uh, and then as he's breaking bread with them, it's revealed to them that it's Jesus. And they're so excited. You know, there was something about him that they understood, you know, their hearts burned within them, they said. But they, they finally discovered at the end that it was Jesus. And they were so excited that they did something Jews never did. They ran back to Jerusalem uh, at night in the dark so that they could tell the disciples uh, what had happened. And, and so, you know, uh, now, Jesus could have just came out from, you know, they could have turned a corner and said, hey guys, I'm Jesus, you remember me, and, and I'm going to give you a Bible study right now because you're way off base on what you're talking about. You have no idea what you're talking about, and I'm going to correct you, and then I'm going to disappear. And, and, you know, I guess that would have been cool in its own dimension, you know, uh, but 
that's what I think sometimes we, we think about the Lord. You know, we just, well, give me, give me the facts. You know, we're kind of like the Jack Webb version of, of Bible study. Just the facts, Jesus. And, you know, now I've got all that under control. I know what to say to people. I know what not to say to people. I know how to conduct myself. And the Lord, he says, you know, I'm going to sneak up on you. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you're going to find me if you're looking for me in places that you don't expect. And we're going to have a little bit of a deeper relationship than that. And so, so sure, you know, uh, you, you can look at this and say, why doesn't the Lord just tell us that it's him? Well, because he does. Only you have to discover the clues. And we've looked at some of the clues, you know. We know that this person, uh, the big clue was that this person goes into the Holy of Holies, which is reserved for God himself. Then we found out that the, uh, you know, the other people... Uh, that we, some people say that he is the prince. He has children and he, uh, you know, uh, has to give an offering for sin. So it's, he's not the Lord. And so there's all this fun discovery uh, so that we can draw closer to the Lord. Now, Ezekiel is led back by Jesus to the front of the temple building where he saw the origin of the river coming from under the temple porch. It apparently goes underground and reemerges from under the eastern gate. As it continues through the city into the countryside towards the Jordan Valley, it becomes wider and deeper so that it's actually a great river. This is not the only place in Scripture to describe this living water in the future kingdom. Psalm 46.4 alludes to the river whose streams make glad the city of God. Psalm 65 verse 9 speaks of the streams of God that provide water for the agriculture of Israel. Isaiah 33.20 foresees Zion as a place of, quote, broad rivers and streams. Joel 3.18 envisions the fountain that will flow out of the Lord's house. And Zechariah 14.8 describes the living water that will flow out from Jerusalem heading east and then west. Back in Ezekiel verse, four, uh, verse 3, And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits. And he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000 and it was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. I can never read this passage but that I remember a, a Bible study uh, I heard uh, in person, given by Alan Redpath. Uh, if you, uh, most of you are familiar with Alan Redpath, we quote him a lot. Uh, you can still get some of his tapes. Uh, certainly, get all of his books. There's not a lot of them, but they're all fantastic. Uh, Redpath, an Englishman who was pastor of Moody Church for a while, and um, at one point he was um, well, not at one point. He's, he was uh, good friends with Don McClure, Calvary pastor. And Don had him come over and do a pastor's conference one time, a special one. And he taught on this passage. Uh, and he did a devotional study uh, about Ezekiel being caught up by the Spirit of God uh, it, using the water as an illustration. You know, as he, he you know, first went in the water and it was so deep and then finally got to his knees. And he talked about the man of prayer and getting closer to the Lord. And then as you continue to walk with the Lord, you know, you're finally swept away by the by the rush of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's just, um, uh, you know, one of those Bible studies that, that just stuck with me. I've tried to teach that Bible study, and I can't. Uh, you know, it's just, there's just something about it. You know, I do it, and people say, yeah, so what? Uh, you know, but when Alan Redpath, it was just rich and full and, and brilliant. And, uh, you know, he's in heaven now uh, with the Lord, and uh, we'll see him one day. 
Now, of interest to us here is that when this water emerges, it is described in verse 2 as running out. The word, I'm told, means to trickle. But this trickle, without any other water joining it, gets broader and deeper as it flows, defying all natural laws and putting us in the realm of the miraculous. Uh, you know, usually if you've got some kind of a water spout that you turn on, you know, if you just turn on the spigot in your front yard, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of pressure, you know, at the source, and then it's going to finally turn into a trickle as it's only rained down the drain kind of a thing, you know. And, and in this case, it starts as a trickle, and then without any other source, it grows and grows and grows to a mighty river. And so it's letting us know that this is uh, miraculous. We're definitely in a time when the Lord is doing unusual things on the earth. And, and it reminds me that it's, it's hard to get a grip on the exact conditions that will prevail in the future millennial kingdom. <clears throat> because the Lord is going to do all sorts of unusual things, like have a trickle become a mighty rushing river. Uh, and so, you know, some things are told us. The lion will lay down with the lamb, and kids will get... I, you know, get a kick out of putting their hand in snake dens, you know, and stuff, and say, look, you know, a few years ago this would have killed me, but not now, you know, and stuff. But, uh, and so there'll be all kinds of fun things like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, to, sometimes people say, well, what exactly is it going to be like in the millennium? And I, it's just, uh, the Lord will be there. Uh, and that's really all that we need to know. Verse 6, he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. And then he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that the fishermen will stand by it from Engedi to Engalim and the, uh, they will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kind as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed, and they will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees uh, used for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for medicine. Now, don't confuse this passage in Ezekiel with the description of eternity in Revelation chapter 22. Yes, there are similarities, notably that a river flows through and nourishes trees on both sides, which are uh, giving forth fruit uh, every month. But in the Revelation, you're clearly told that there will be no temple. And so this is a river, clearly, that has its source in the millennial temple. Uh, in eternity, there is no temple. Revelation 21, 20, or 21 22 says uh, so clearly. And as far as healing, if you're following the timeline, of course, you know, Jesus comes back at the end of the great tribulation and establishes the thousand-year kingdom, and the earth is, is in pretty bad shape. Uh, it's like most of our garages, you know, and stuff. It's just only worse than that. It's been burned and destroyed, and there's, there's you know, the waters were turned to blood, and there's, there's death and destruction everywhere. And so he begins to heal uh, and, and a part of this is this water that goes forth, this healing water, a symbolic of His Holy Spirit that is uh, being sent forth. Now, as this river enters the Dead Sea, the water there will become fresh. The Dead Sea, now some six times saltier than the ocean, will become completely salt-free. 
and it will support life so that where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will crowd the shores. There will be just an abundance of fish. Now, while the Dead Sea itself will be made fresh, the swamps and marshes will not. They're going to be left for salt. Uh, Don't think of that as a bad thing. Salt is an essential element, and the Dead Sea area is Israel's chief source of salt. And so if the Lord turns the Dead Sea into... Uh, or if he, if he eliminates the salt in the Dead Sea, then he has to provide salt in another way, and he does. And basically, this is just telling us, if you lived in Israel at this time especially, you would think, what are we going to do for salt? Uh, because salt, salt was pretty important, more so than just yelling at each other about whether or not it causes heart disease today and how much salt to put on your French fries and whether you put salt on or not. I mean, you know, we don't... Salt, I mean, maybe salt is important to you. I, I don't... Do you, how many of you really salt your meals? I mean, I, I don't use salt that much. I just don't like it. It's not that I'm health conscious that really. I just... Salt doesn't do anything for me. But in these days, salt was a critical preservative. I mean, if you didn't have salt, I mean, you didn't have a refrigerator, and so they knew how to salt meat and salt different things to preserve. And so, so when you're a Jew and you think, the Dead Sea, on the one hand, that's great for fishermen. Well, what are we going to do for salt? And, and then the Lord said, don't worry about that. There will be marshes and rivulets that will still have salt. And so the Lord is telling them, they would get immediately, well, the Lord's going to provide for us. He's going to provide fish and fresh water and he's going to heal the land and we'll have salt. We'll have everything that we need. It'll just be different uh, than it is right now. Another way God will provide for Israel is by the trees on the riverbanks that will bear fruit year round. God will use these trees to meet people's physical needs. The fruit will provide food and their leaves will provide healing. How healing will come from the leaves is not clear, but sickness will be virtually eliminated It's, again, one of those millennial mysteries in terms of uh, who will get sick and how they'll get sick and the healing that will take place. But uh, we're clearly told that the leaves of the trees will be used for healing. It's always interesting to me that God uses means for doing things, uh, you know, when when he doesn't have to. I mean, even Jesus, when he was on the earth, he could speak the word and somebody could be healed at a great distance, but other times he chose to use means. Uh, you know, he, he made mud one time from spittle and put it on somebody, uh, somebody's eyes to uh, cure their blindness. And other times he would touch or uh, do different things like that. And so um, I guess, you know, on one level it reminds me that I am one of his means. Uh, it, you know, the Lord would do a much better job. Uh, one angel, I mean really, just one angel in the whole Central Valley do a much better job than all the churches combined. Uh, in terms of just getting the gospel out, right? I mean, just think of it, you know, just, hey, what's that out there? Is that the space shuttle flying overhead? No, that's Gabriel. Uh, What's he saying? He's saying, get saved, or else it's going to be all over pretty soon. All right, hey, that's... Maybe we ought to think about going to Calvary Chapel, you know, and uh, something like that. I mean, angels would do a great job, you know, they just, you know, and if people doubt them, they cause them to go blind and mute and, you know, fantastic stuff. Uh, But God says, no, I want to use means. Uh, I want to use you. I want to use you Uh, because then we'll grow in our relationship and people will see my grace and my mercy and uh, things that they don't get from angels so much, you know. And the angel can say, God is merciful, and then you question him, and he says, yeah, well, you're a mute now for, you know, for quite a while. And stuff, real, thanks a lot, you know, real mercy there. Uh, now, beginning with verse 13 and 14, 
we see the future division of the land to the tribes of Israel. And it's a subject that uh, will occupy the rest of the book. Verse 13, thus says the Lord God, These are the borders uh, by which you shall divide the land as an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. You shall inherit it equally with one another, for I raised my hand in an oath to give it to your fathers, and this land shall fall to you as your inheritance. God promised Abraham and his physical descendants certain land in what we call the Middle East, and that promise has never been rescinded. Israel's experiencing blessing in the land was conditioned on her obedience to God, but her right to possess the land has never been revoked. Any system of understanding the Bible as a whole, or what we call systematic theology, must account for the literal promises God made to the physical descendants of Abraham. If a system is grossly ignorant of Israel, stating, for example, that we are now somehow spiritually Israel, well, I reject that. And if the system is wrong on so fundamental a topic, uh, why follow it at all? One such system is called replacement theology, one of its adherents. Kenneth Gentry defines replacement theology as follows. He says, we believe that the international church has superseded for all time national Israel as the institution for the administration of divine blessing to the world. European scholar Ronald Diprose defines replacement theology this way. He says, the church completely and permanently replaced ethnic Israel in the working out of God's plan and as recipient of Old Testament promises addressed to Israel. Some uh, scholars also call this position supersessionism uh, because that's what scholars do. They have fancy names for things. And so it, they, it su- we supersede Israel, uh, they say, and they believe that Israel has no future in the plan of God. Jews, maybe, individual Jews, you know, they can be saved. But as far as a plan for Israel or promises to the nation of Israel or the division of land to the tribes of Israel, that's all passed now to the church, they say. Uh, The church inherits all the blessings while Israel endures all the curses, is essentially what they're saying. Another systematic theology, Reformed Covenant theology, is described by one of its adherents this way. He says, for Reformed theology, the church has always been the Israel of God, And the Israel of God has always been the church. Reformed covenant theology distinguishes the old and new covenants. It recognizes that the church was temporarily administered through a a typological national people, but the church has existed since Adam, Noah, and Abraham, and it existed under Moses and David, and now it exists under Christ. Now, I know what he's trying to say, but the truth is the church has not existed since the time of Adam. Christians have existed since the time. Believers have existed since the time of Adam, but not the church. The church is a mystery revealed to us in the New Testament. We're told that. And so the church uh, is something altogether wonderful, altogether different, not found in the Old Testament. It, it It is something new that comes... Because Israel rejected Jesus Christ in his first coming to establish the kingdom. And so the Lord said, I will build my church. He will call out a group of people, a Gentile, Jews and Gentiles, into this fantastic body of believers. And then we will be raptured and resurrected. And then God will deal with ethnic Israel again. And and you really can't avoid that uh, as you're reading the Bible literally. 
At best, these views mishandle major portions of the Bible. At worst, they really do foster incredible anti-Semitism and hatred for the Jews. And so we reject their views on Israel. And I'm serious when I say that if they can be so wrong about Israel, which is such a huge topic in the Bible, uh, next to God, probably the biggest subject in the Bible, uh, then I'm not sure why we want to follow them on other things as well. Now, we believe that the church is the current instrument through which God is working in this age and that God has a future plan in which he will restore national Israel and keep all of his promises to them. Now, in verses 15 through 20, we get the borders of the land. This shall be the border of the land on the north from the great sea by the road to Hethlon as one goes to Zadad, Hamath, uh, Barathoth, Sibraim, which is between the border of Damascus and the border of Hamath, to Hazar, Hadakon, which is on the border of Haran. This is the boundary that shall be from the sea to Hazar and on the border of Damascus and as far uh, and as for the north, excuse me, northward it, uh, is the border of Hamath. This is the north side. On the east side you shall mark out the border from between Haran and Damascus, and between Gilead and the land of Israel along the Jordan, and along the eastern side of the sea. This is the east side. The south side, toward the south, <laughs> shall be from Tamar uh, to the waters of Meribah by Kadesh, along the brook to the great sea. This is the south side, uh, toward the south. It's an early GPS uh, kind of thing. The west side shall be the great sea from the southern boundary until one comes to a point opposite Hamath. This is the west side. Now, the land shown to Moses in Deuteronomy 34 and allotted among the tribes of jo- uh, by Joshua was never fully under Israelite control. Much of it was captured initially but abandoned to Canaanite resettlement when the Israelites failed to fully drive them out. More of it was lost during the disastrous days of the judges. David recaptured a lot of it, including Jerusalem, but by reason of the faithlessness of the people of God, much was again lost to neighbors far or distant during the days of the kings. And all had been lost, of course, by the time of Ezekiel's prophecy because he was talking to exiles in Babylon and Jerusalem had fallen and the temple had been destroyed. And so the vision of a fully restored Israel occupying all of its promised land was given at a time when uh, it was most needed to encourage the people. The exiles were to walk by faith in the ultimate future promised to them. It would have been hard if you were a a Jew living in Babylon. I mean, that's a great understatement. But, I mean, can you imagine witnessing to a Babylonian and saying, you know, one day Israel is going to be totally restored as the apple of God's eye. It'll be, Jerusalem will be the center of the earth. And the Babylonian is probably a guy that had been, you know, one of the soldiers who had helped burn down the temple. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's real faith. It's kind of like Abraham going around saying, I'm the father of many nations. Really? How many children do you have? One. Oh, okay. How's that working out for you? This father of many nations thing. And, and so, you know, uh, so, you know, when you and I feel, you know, do you ever feel sometimes... I, I, you ever, you know, you explain to somebody the rapture of the church and they look at you and they cock your head to one side or the other. You know, it's like, really? You believe that people are going to be supernaturally removed from planet Earth? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, they used to call that mental illness. <laughs> now they call it Christianity. Yeah, you know, uh, and so 
there's a sense of you know walking by faith and believing that God's going to do these things when it seems well obviously it's humanly impossible and when you don't see any way that it can happen but that's what it means to walk by faith verse 21 thus you shall divide the land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel it shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the strangers who dwell among you and who bear children among you they shall be to you as native born among the children of Israel and they shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall be that in whatever tribe the stranger dwells, there shall give him an inheritance, says the Lord. And so Ezekiel also included regulations for allotting land to resident aliens who will want to associate with Israel. Being considered native-born Israelites, they're to be allotted an inheritance. Though foreigners had always been allowed to live in Israel, in the future they will be allowed to enjoy other privileges previously granted only to ethnic Israelites um, Ezekiel was bold to share what God was showing him. Uh, this would have been a radical thought for the exiles. After all, they had just been conquered by a great Gentile power. Add to that their own ethnic prejudices. And so you don't want to be told, you know, you've just been told that the whole land is going to be restored to Israel and you're getting a sense of national pride. And then Ezekiel says, and Gentiles are going to get saved and also be a part of of getting an inheritance and now this is a faith stretcher for them uh you know it's a, i don't i don't know what i think about that i'm not sure i want gentiles to be saved because they just ruined my life uh and so god is you know putting that out to them uh and, and it you know as we close tonight uh, i wondered in my own heart are there groups of people that we have trouble envisioning as coming to faith in jesus christ or personal prejudices i know there's no slam on my, my family growing up, but uh, like many of you, I grew up in a very uh, prejudiced, bigoted home. Uh, and, um, you know, sometimes you, you, you ever wonder, you know, what, are there vestiges of that? Uh, do we really look at all people as equal? And, and as, do we see the gospel as a whosoever will message? Are there groups of people we would rather not go to uh, maybe even local groups, that kind of a thing. It's, it's worth thinking about because the gospel is God's universal provision for mankind's universal need. All who are thirsty are to come and drink of the water of life freely. Amen? Amen.